Today's episode of RBC Disruptors was recorded in front of a live audience. Good afternoon and welcome to RBC Disruptors. I'm John Stackhouse. It's my pleasure to hold our monthly conversations on technology and how it's changing everything around us. Today we're joined by an incredible leader in technology who almost needs no introduction, Stuart Butterfield, the founder and CEO of Slack. Stuart, welcome to RBC and RBC Disruptors. Thank you. Great to have you here. Uh, Stuart's story is incredible. We're going to talk about what he's doing at Slack. We're going to get a bit of his own history, some of the lessons he's learned. Can't let it pass without a bit about your upbringing. Born in a fishing village in Vancouver Island in the woods. First five years of his life without technology or without electricity. Hard to have technology without electricity. Studied at the University of Victoria and then philosophy at Cambridge University. So we'll hear a bit more about that. Went on to uh, create Flickr, a couple of gaming companies, and then, of course, Slack. So, uh, Stuart, as I say, welcome to uh, the conversation. It's great to spend uh, some time. Take us back, actually, to the beginning. As I mentioned, you grew up uh, or were raised in the woods. Curious how you ended up in technology, especially after studying philosophy. Um, When I was five, we moved to Victoria, which was like the the big city, um, so that I could go to school. And fast forward, um, so I was born in 1973, that's 1978 when we would have arrived in Victoria. Fast forward a couple years, and um, when I was in second grade, my uh, elementary school class was the first class in that school, and I think in that school district, to get computers in the classroom. And we also... Um, got a computer at home, an Apple IIe, and taught myself coding. So I was really enthusiastic about computers when I was young. Um, I would write terrible video games. There was a magazine called Byte, which published um, programs in the back, a couple of pages, and you could just copy them out. And to be honest, that kind of that waned um, as I got older. So through high school, I just was less and less interested until I arrived at the University of Victoria in 1992 and got an account on the school's Unix machine. And exposure to the internet just blew my mind. It was really, um, like for me anyway, it's occurred as like a, as profound a shift as has ever happened in the history of the species. And that might sound overblown or exaggerated. But like the development of written language mm-hmm. is like one amazing moment that completely transformed us as a species, and there's been a handful of other ones. And I think the development of the internet, the ability to kind of transcend geography, to transcend social groupings, um, is a really, really important one. And that really reignited my interest in technology. In this case, more the use of computing technology to facilitate human interaction. And I was studying philosophy, um, specifically as an undergrad, I studied logic and philosophy of mind, and then graduate school, philosophy of biology. Um, But that was also really intertwined with the history of computing. So um, computer science, before it was its own discipline, was usually conducted either in mathematics departments or philosophy departments. And um, I was really interested in the underpinnings of of computers, um, the kind of the John von Neumann, Alan Turing, history, and that had no real practical ramifications, but um, that interest in the internet, I think, was something that really changed my life, because that was 92. It's a little bit before the web uh, became a phenomenon, before the web kind of took off, and so when the web did take off a year or so later, I taught myself HTML as one of the few people around me, anyway, who could make websites, and that became my summer job all the way through um, university. And then there's this critical moment for me in 1998 where I had just finished my master's degree and I was enrolled, I was set to start the PhD. And um, 
the dot-com boom had started, and so I had two sets of friends, one in the academic world who were getting their first jobs that they hated, that were very poor paying, you know, very little job security, recessional, you had to renew every nine months, um, and the people who are moving to San Francisco and making like twice as much money, and it's this crazy dynamic environment where everyone's changing the world, and so I left. And, uh, and what is that, 20 yep. years later, here I am. So I want to give you a crack here at explaining what is Slack. All right. Um, I had this experience um, like about a year and a half ago. I was at a dinner, and there's a bunch of CEOs at this event. And I was explaining what Slack was to the person to my left, who was the CEO of a French beverage conglomerate. And I was about like maybe three or four minutes into the explanation, pretty esoteric, pretty convoluted. And someone leaned across the table and said, it replaces email inside your company. And he said, oh. <laughs> so um, that was a much better explanation than the one that I attempted. But there's two um, aspects to that. The first is just on the communication side. Um, so email is designed around individuals, so kind of individual-first communication. Slack is designed around teams or organizations, so it's team-first communication. And rather than having the messages kind of a partial, fragmented copy of the conversations in your inbox, conversations happen in what we call channels, and those channels are accessible to everyone. So that's one. You can see I answer questions in a very extensive, <laughs> uh, long-winded way. The other part is email as a platform. And um, uh, one of our board members once described email as the window through which all workflows across the company are made visible to the employees. And it's actually pretty accurate. So you have Outlook or whatever it is you use, and that's kind of your window to what's going on across the company. If there's an acquisition or a divestiture, if there's an executive change that's announced to you in that way, if you work on contracts or documents, the documents are going back and forth with red lines via email. Um, so Slack also replaces that aspect of email, and unlike email, it's designed specifically to be able to do that. Maybe you can share some insights on how large organizations are creatively uh, using Slack. I'll, I'll give an example from our own usage, and we're not as big of a company. I think the microcosm helps. Um, Oracle, the software company, is now our second biggest customer. And... Um, Last summer, uh, like maybe 14, 15 months ago, we were in the process of closing this deal. And so we have a sales organization we were just talking about. For each of the large customers, there's a Slack channel that's accounts-name of the company. So there was an accounts-oracle channel. And on the Oracle side, there was about 100 people involved in the process. And there's a couple dozen people on the Slack side who were um, dealing with it. They would give each other updates and ask each other questions in this channel, I could just look at it. They were all on the same page. There wasn't a lot of like daily stand-up meetings or updates or anything like that. But it goes beyond that because they weren't doing that for my benefit. That wasn't performative for the CEO. That was just their regular communication. And anyone else across the company could see it. And if you think about like uh, Dilbert and the pointy-haired boss or the movie Office Space or TV show The Office or the kind of common tropes of... Um, corporate life, it's often this disaffectation or alienation um, that people feel due to not understanding the context. They feel like this is a decision that came from corporate or something like that, to feeling cut off from the, from understanding the, the motivations and, and the rationale. And that doesn't happen, you know, and, and that's a pretty profound change. So inside of the largest organizations, we see exactly the same phenomenon. I think, you know, maybe IBM, because it's so big, there's a couple of special cases. They have a uh, centers of excellence that essentially exist on Slack, which didn't exist otherwise. And if we can quickly jump forward to Flickr, I'd like to get a quick insight on where that came from. So both Flickr and Slack um, 
were pivots away from the initial project of the companies, and in both cases, the companies were founded to build web-based, massively multiplayer games. That seems very, very different. The uniting characteristic, from my perspective, is that use of computing technology to facilitate human interaction. So I'm not especially a big gamer. Um, I don't play a lot of console or PC games. And the games that we were making were much more esoteric, and you can see why they were not commercially viable in a second. Um, but like no combat, no fighting, cooperative, creative, a little bit of like Dr. Seuss meets Monty Python, surreal mm. world. A niche audience that was very enthusiastic about it, but definitely not... Um, not widespread, but the principal part of it was it was like the shared world that people were creating together. Anyone could interact with anyone else. It was, in, in technical terms, we say uncharted, so everyone was playing in the same world. And the step from there to what someone um, at Yahoo, the company that ended up buying Flickr, called massively multiplayer photo sharing was actually not that great because mm-hmm. Flickr was the first uh, photo sharing site um, or the first you know, one that, that took off in the spaces where you could make your photos public and people could comment on them and you could form groups. Um, and that was very different than what was happening before, which was principally about um, online websites that would let you order prints of, of photos. So you could share them, but you would share them privately with a small group in the hopes that they would order four by six or five by seven prints. And um, that, that really changed things. And Slack... Again, obviously very different than a massively multiplayer game, but it's massively multiplayer workplace software. And I think that was one of the... I mean, I wish that we knew all this in advance. This is all post-facto rationalization for how things turned out. But in all cases, it's the same. You have an identity you're able to interact with and send messages to people across the system. It's simple and flexible enough to to be able to model a really complex arrangement. And, And as a result, we have people using Slack in um, restaurants and farms, police departments, state and local government, um, like the city of Stockholm administration runs on Slack and the Hartford, Connecticut Police Department runs on Slack and a number of um, great restaurants, mostly in the Bay Area, um, run on Slack, but it's, it's around the world and it's like huge corporations, about two-thirds of the Fortune 100, um, but it's also used by 500,000 different kinds of organizations from student clubs and research labs um, to here at RBC. So you mentioned with Flickr was a pivot and Slack was a pivot. Where did the idea come from in your mind for the pivot for Slack? Well, we got up to about 45 people and we worked on this game for three and a half years and it was this really incredible technology and there's a whole bunch of interesting creative stuff. Um, but we had a system for internal communication which was based on an ancient internet technology called IRC. So IRC stands for Internet Relay Chat. It was one of the things that I discovered in 1992 when I first got online because it, it dates from about 89. Uh, it, very popular among open source developers. Um, kind of popular in the internet community when the internet community was a thing as opposed to all of you know four and a half billion people. Um, and... IRC is very much like Slack, but very deficient in the sense of the requirements of modern workforces because it was so old. So over the course of several years, we just made little additions and fixed um, uh, small, annoying aspects of it, made small improvements, looked for opportunities to, um, to help with internal communication. And I think this is really important, not in a conscious way. So we didn't 
talk about it. This thing didn't have a name. We didn't deliberately try to spend time on it. It was something that we did in the background. And the reason I think that's important is because there was no ego or speculation involved in, in the design process, which there almost always is. Uh, you, people can't help it but become attached to their, their own ideas. But because this was just trying to solve for the things that we found difficult in internal communication, this system evolved over the course of those years to be something that we thought was really great. And when we decided to shut down the game, we would realize we would never work without a system like this again, and it was a pretty short hop from there to probably other people would like it. So you've got 9 million active users today. Curious what you've learned, uh, what you've learned from them. Um, well, an enormous amount. So we're obviously very hardcore users of our own product, and um, because we put all of the features in, we have pretty deep knowledge of them. I would say that we probably invented 10 or 15% of the best practices around how to use Slack, and the other 85 or 90% we've learned from watching customers. And we have a you know, a predisposition to be more service-oriented. I think we're big believers in the idea that in the long run, the, like the value of what we do will be determined by the amount of value that we create for our customers. And part of that is customer service. We have a great team around the world, 75-minute um, time to first response, 98% customer satisfaction rating. And that's, you know, we look at that as basically a marketing expense because if people are so happy with the service, they go on to tell people. But the other thing is it's this enormous surface area for receiving signal back from people. And we have analytics, and we can instrument the software, we can measure all kinds of things. But um, nothing compares to just hearing from people what the questions are. So if there's a, you know, a large number of questions about something, probably it's not clear. If there's a large number of complaints about something, either it's not clear or it's just wrong. And the team that manages that, you know, tens of thousands, or I don't even know at this point um, what the volume is like, but maybe hundreds of thousands of um, customer support tickets a month, a, a similar number of tweets, all of them handled one-on-one -on -one by an actual human, um, are enormous signal that we can use to improve the quality of the product. Curious how you think about scale. Nine million users is extraordinary, but I think I've read a comment from you that you think there are 200 million, if that's the right number, uh, potential users out there. Mm -hmm. Curious how you get from 10 million roughly to 200 million. How do you onboard them? Uh, uh, a lot and, of hard work. A lot, a lot of work, yeah, so obviously, but how, and, and how long does that take? Well, let's see if we're successful first, but um, there's probably something like 600 million knowledge workers ex-China, and, and for various reasons, China's not a, um, a market for us. Of those, I think you could really restrict it to the um, people who spend a couple of hours sitting down in front of a computer each day um, is, is like the, the key market, or people who um, use email to get their work done. So when I use those characteristics, I'm saying, you know, Probably not most retail workers, not most food service workers. Um, it excludes a large number of people in healthcare, for example. Uh, so that's a very big market. And how do we grow? I mean, the same way that we're doing it now, which is more and more international expansion. We just made Slack available in French, German, and Spanish um, last September, and then Japanese in November. So a lot of it is just that kind of mm -hmm. stuff, making it available in local languages, offering support in those languages, opening office, building sales teams, actually marketing it in, in those countries because we um, haven't marketed very much outside the U.S. And the other one is um, more and more support for specific industries, specific vertical, verticals, specific regulatory um, environments. So 
um, for regulated customers in financial services. There's FINRA compliance. FINRA itself, like the actual organization, is a customer of, of ours, and um, as are a number of insurance companies and, and retail banks and um, hedge funds. So it's a lot of just work. Um, mm-hmm. There's no there's no magic ingredient there, but making Slack available to a wider and wider audience. You've talked about building empathy at scale. What does that mean? It's really about um, going to the extreme of putting customers first. And there's um, there's a lot of other businesses that have been really good at that historically. Um, I think about a well-run restaurant or hotel, and I don't necessarily mean an expensive one, but just one that's well-run. It's about the customer. It's about um, creating an experience for them, um, a nice more well-run restaurant pays attention to things like the noise levels and the design of the room so noise doesn't bounce around too much. That kind of service orientation or putting the, you know, let me put it this way, whatever someone thinks is how Slack is supposed to work is um, the right way of thinking about it. And to the extent that we deviate from that, um, that's our problem and not theirs. So if someone asks a question in a customer support ticket, it is uh, completely unacceptable to, to say they're an idiot because they couldn't figure this out. It's what are we doing wrong that they couldn't figure this out. So if we look at uh, some of the companies that have been in the news about, uh, about their culture, uh, a lot of that has been tagged to the Valley. And I'm curious how, as a CEO and founder, when you look at your own organization, how you ensure that it's, uh, um, it's, it's uh, immune great- to some of those forces. Well, I wouldn't say immune, but I mean, um, there's a huge amount of self-selection at play, right? So um, we committed to building a diverse and inclusive organization really early, and that meant that we attracted people to whom that was important. Um, and so there wasn't some magic culture thing that we did. Um, as the company grew, um, A, it was more diverse than the typical tech company, but also attracted a, a, a a type of person for whom that was a more important issue. So um, not immune, but it's it's um, kind of like an increasing return dynamic. So once you start moving in this direction, it becomes easier and easier to move in this direction as opposed to it gets harder and harder as you get bigger. Um, I will say this, though. that the I don't think that there's any, when you say cultural problems, I mean, let's say sexism, racism, or just people being jerks inside the company. Um, those are the big ones. There's real systemic problems, and this is a sexist society. So no one can expect those things to stop when you enter one building. They're not going to stop when you come in the front door of Slack because we exist in this in this whole world. And so um, I think it's totally fair for people to call out problems that are happening in tech companies. I think it's ridiculous to imagine that that's somehow unique to the tech industry, and it's not in commercial real estate, and it's not in medical equipment sales, and it's not in the military, and it's not in finance, because it is. Um, and I think that's a, it's a, this is not allowed to suggest that, that people in the tech industry should not be held accountable or um, that they shouldn't be important issues, but it, I, I think it's something that, I feel like we're at the very beginning now, even though it's 2018, in really addressing those things um, at the level of, of the society. Well, that's a really important point. A lot of these challenges, are, m- most of them are societal, not uh, sectoral. 
I wonder if you can t uh, touch on your values, which are, uh, which are fascinating, courtesy, playfulness, and craftsmanship, just to pick three, very different from any other corporate values I've, I've heard. Yeah. So like a lot of people, I, I was very influenced by the Netflix culture deck, the original mm -hmm. one. There's like actually a whole updated thing that they, they changed in a pretty profound way. But one of the things that I liked about it was in the beginning, um, they held up three values. And unfortunately, I'm forgetting the third one, but they were excellence, integrity, and something else. And... Um, and then you flip through a couple pages, and you're like, ha-ha, that was Enron's values. Um, but the point was, <laughs> they, they could have described anything, right? Like, it could have been an auto manufacturer, it could have been a bank, it could have been a tech company. Um, so one of the things we tried to do was come up with a set of values that, because there's a whole bunch of things that we, everyone would agree are, are valuable, like honesty or fair play or something like that. Um, but we felt like uniquely identified Slack, that, that you wouldn't read them and say, oh, that could be anyone. Um, and craftsmanship and, and playfulness, I think, are, we'll use those two examples. Um, one is, it's, I think it's very important, not just to the ultimate product that you're selling to customers and the experience that customers have, but to the experience of working at a place that you are encouraged to or allowed to exhibit craftsmanship, that take care in your work, to do something in a shoddy or sloppy way because there's some rush or um, mandate from the company to, to cut corners, creates an environment that is less good. I mean, it's, like, it's not as fun to work there. It's not as engaging. You don't, you know, like I'd mentioned earlier, all the Dilbert office space stuff. You know, another thing that I think really is a challenge for a lot of people is the feeling that um, they have so much more to offer than they're being called on to, to give in the role that they have. And I think it can be a real point of frustration. So that's the craftsmanship side. And playfulness sounds like a bizarre one, I think, to a lot of people. But there's this, um, you know, being able to look at the world sideways and to be creative, I think, requires an element of playfulness. And um, those of you who have dogs or like dogs or have hung out with dogs before might recognize this thing that dogs do where they put their front paws down like, like that and put their head down and they're 100% engaged and ready to spontaneously react to whatever it is that you're about to do. And you can pretend to throw the ball or like waggle your hand or, or do pretty much anything and they're going to react. And that, that stance of playfulness, I think, is one that is really important to maintain even in a corporate environment um, so that we... Uh, ensure that we explore the whole creative landscape and find creative solutions. One of the criticisms of the valley and valley culture is, yes, it's incredibly deep, uh, but it's also very narrow. There's not a great diversity of, of, of thought. You can, uh, you can disagree if you want, but I, I'm curious from your own perspective, having studied philosophy, what are some of the critical uh, aspects or aspects of critical thinking that you see lacking in the valley that maybe you developed in your own, in your own education? That's a great question. So there's two parts. So one is um, headquartered in the Valley, I think, is something that's important for us, especially as when we're a younger company. If we live up to our ambitions and we become much, much larger, I don't think it really matters so much where we're, we're headquartered because the company can move anywhere. And also, we already are committed to expanding all around the world. Um, if there's a shortcoming that's specific to the Valley, um, I mean, there's more of a shortcoming specific to living in, in the Valley or living in San Francisco, which is it's uh, a geographic area that's so completely dominated by one industry that it becomes a much less interesting place to live. Um, so in contrast to, to New York, where I get to spend some time, in contrast to Toronto, which is an amazing city, 
um, there's just tech. Like, there, there isn't publishing, there isn't finance, there isn't media, um, there's almost no art because the artists can't afford to live there. Um, there's no vibrant immigrant communities in, in San Francisco. Um, it's really just like a one industry town, and as a result of that kind of a monoculture, so I'm not sure if that leads to fallacious thinking. Um, there is a, a, you know, a real uh, dominance of one view of the world and one kind of way to spend your time, your finite time on this planet, which is about starting tech companies and, and making money. Um, so I don't know that I would recommend it as a place to live other than that opportunity. And I think people don't, no one moves to San Francisco or Silicon Valley because they just wanted to live there and they're going to do something else, right? They move there because they're excited about the industry and it's dynamic and um, it's fascinating problems to work on and they can strike it rich and they want to be an entrepreneur or whatever. Whereas people move here because it's an amazing city. People move to New York because it's an amazing city. People move to London or Tokyo because they're amazing cities. And long term, I think that's a disadvantage. Thanks for joining us at RBC. Thank you. Thanks for downloading RBC Disruptors. Our show this week was produced and edited by Vocal Fry Studios. You can reach us at RBC Disruptors at rbc.com and join the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag RBC Disruptors. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>